The Enneagram is the great equalizer because there's no, you don't have to have a, any kind of special anything to learn the Enneagram and relate to it. So, you know, sometimes when I'm going into a really big church, they'll say to Laura, who handles all that stuff for me, well, who should come? Uh, if, if you're going to teach our staff, we have a staff of 125, who should come? And the answer is everybody should come. Like, everybody. And not many people who come into organizations to offer something can freely say, everybody should come. This is for everybody to episode 96 of the Anagram Journey podcast with the relationship guru, the Anagram godmother, Suzanne Stabile. Right now, my wife and I are re-watching Game of Thrones and I feel like we can just keep adding things to Suzanne's title like they do with uh, the Mother of Dragons, the Unburnt, the Mother of Dragons, the Breaker of Chains, yada yada yada. Now we're trying on relationship guru and the Anagram godmother. Today's episode is a fun one. In November, we traveled over to Waco, Texas, and met outside of the fabled bookshop and cafe, and set up shop there in the alley next to the parking lot, and recorded a live podcast with Anagram for Kelly Harp. Kelly and her husband Clint, who's an Anagram 7, live in Waco with their three kids. Uh, There's so much you can find out about them if you visit harpdesignco.com you might recognize them from different things on the Magnolia Network and when you're in Waco just stop by the Harp Design Woodshop it's very cool I want to give a huge huge thank you to uh, Fabled for hosting us and helping us make this happen if you are in the Waco area or passing through stop there Uh, you can find them online at fabledbookshop.com and then I also want to thank the Enneagram Journey's own Craig Nash, Enneagram 6. We couldn't have made this happen without him as well. Since I can't, I don't know if there's a craignash.com, but I know that he's passionate about the Texas Hunger Initiative. So please go online and check out and support the Texas Hunger Initiative. And I'll put the links for all these people that we want to support and promote in the show notes and on the Enneagram Journey uh, podcast page. The plug for today is Anagram in the Holidays. It is out and available. It's over two hours of really phenomenal teaching from Suzanne. I was listening to it, and it just is kind of unlike any of her other teaching right now. It's really unique and just really great, so I can't recommend it more. You can find it at SuzanneStabile.com and at uh, LifeInTheTrinityMinistry.com. There's so much information in today's podcast that... I can't limit it down to just a highlight or two. So we're going to go ahead and send it on over to Suzanne and Kelly, recorded live in Waco. Just start like I always do, and I need y'all to meet Joe. Stand up. Doesn't he look so great? (laughs) We don't get out much these days, so (laughs) Uh, in case you've never met him. He's the best person I've ever known, and I get to live with him somehow. I, he, uh, by his presence, just insists that I be who I can be every day. So I hope you get a chance to say hi to him. 
you want to introduce your guy? Or are you going to have to go home and not this have is, done that? This is a lot of pressure. <laughs> Thank you, Suzanne, for that. <laughs> um, no, I would like to introduce you to my husband, Clint Harp, who is the best person I know. No, he absolutely is. And... He's like so embarrassed. This is really, it's fun for me to be the one with the microphone. No, he really is great. I am an Enneagram 4, and he is an Enneagram 7 only because I finally told him, which Suzanne says not to do. But I did tell her. It was years that I didn't say, and then he wouldn't take the test, so yeah. I finally said. So yeah. I feel like that's legal. Got to do what you got to do. And we, what is your aversion to my work exactly? <laughs> I do love him a lot, yeah. and I learned a lot from the Green Book, where you break it down, the four yeah. and the seven, so yes, yeah. so thank you for that. I told you already that it's particularly exciting to talk to at least not an introvert. Even if you're not an extrovert, you're not an introvert who's a four, who is willing to talk about fourness without... It needing to be coaxed, right? I have a real good friend who lives in Austin who is very articulate about her foreignness too. And I always like to talk to her because I think your number is the most complex. And it's the hardest, I think, for people to understand because I think there are a lot of people who don't know a four well. Do you think it's that fours think that they don't know them well? Or do people just not know fours well? Uh, I'll answer for the people. You can answer for the fours. Okay. I think people feel like they don't quite understand fours. And I know that young fours tell me that nobody gets them. Mm. You know, I started teaching at Baylor a long time ago. A long time ago. Like, Kristen and Ryan and I were young. <laughs> And they still are. It was a long time ago. And kids used to always come to me and say, you know, I'm a four and nobody gets me. And the first couple of years that I taught, I said, oh, it's, it's going to get better. And then I thought, you know, that, that's really not true. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh-oh, I'm not going to keep saying that. So then I said, uh, that's true. And it's probably not going to get better. And for the fours that I said that to, they said that was helpful. I think I'm really, I think that's true. I think I'm really lucky that I have some good friends and I, I have throughout my life. I wonder, it was probably an advantage to me that I grew up in Tyler and I was in the same, with the same group of friends the whole time. Um, that might've been helpful to me. And then now you know, in my community in Waco, we've been doing the Enneagram for a long time. And so probably my friends like Kristen are like, oh, she's a four. Okay. <laughs> I need to do a little more work here. Or we had language to talk about it. You know, um, I do identify with, we feel like something's wrong with us, <laughs> which I think everybody does feel, but we do tend to feel, or I tend to feel different or like I'm a little bit out there sometimes. That is true. But I think maybe that speak maybe we need community even more for that and people who really know us mm -hmm. because 
I know that when I'm having those feelings, I do have some friends who I can go to and kind of get back grounded. It kind of feels like you're a loose balloon a little bit. And then if you have some people that can help ground you a little bit, you're like, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm here. That's right. I would just add to that that I, th- I think the Enneagram would teach that fours believe that there is something, something wrong that is uh, innately wrong. It's like you were born with a flaw somehow. And that's how you explain being unique and authentic. You know, there are a lot of people who are unique who are not authentically unique. They're trying to stand out for some reason or trying to appear to be different. But fours are committed to authenticity, which is what makes them unique because they don't want to be like everybody else, right? Well, I think so, but I think... I would say I, I do, of course, when you're just you, you don't realize how you're different than other people, right? But I do feel really committed to authenticity when I can. Obviously, it's not all the time, but that is a very high priority for me. And I only through the Enneagram have I realized that, which I think is really helpful because it's like, why do I always keep coming back to this? And it is authenticity. And I think I'm not, I don't know. <laughs> It is hard to talk about us. This is hard um, as a four. But yeah, I do think that authenticity is really important to me. Um, and But that does present some problems sometimes. So I'm working on a new book uh, feverishly because it's due uh, December 1st, which is, you know, like in a minute. Um, <clears throat> and um, I just wrote in that book that for a long time, I said that I thought fours, well, not for a long time, for a few years way back, I said that I thought fours wanted to be special. But that was not true. Yeah, I and I remember, I think you said that in a workshop I was in, yeah. and I definitely think that's not true. Not true. Yeah, Because I think we don't really like to stand out. I don't, it's even... I like having this conversation with you, and I, I love being a member of Waco. I love so many personal people out here, but I, I don't. I, authenticity is important to me, but it's I'm not like, hey, guys, I want to be authentic. You know, <laughs> it took me a while to realize and even name what it is. So I appreciate that you said that. Yeah, well, then the second sentence was, and then I said they wanted to be unique, and that was inadequate. Hmm. And the last sentence was, What I think is that fours want to be seen and heard and known and maybe understood. That's really good. And it took a long time to get there for me because you are different than any combination of other numbers. And I think that's a great thing and a necessary thing. And I don't know that we support that difference enough. I do think that sometimes my commitment to the authenticity piece, I I worry that it looks like I'm trying, especially in our culture, I think, do you, I know I've read that sometimes like American culture can be kind of like a three, maybe? For sure. Okay, okay. Yeah, there's, there's so no kind of maybe, okay, might yeah, be. Thank yeah, you. No. I, I, I really identify with that. Too. Yeah. I can see that. So, And Joe and I just rolled in from a three city. But I do think being a four and being committed to authenticity, I do worry that it often comes across as, hey, guys, look at me, you know, when really it, 
it's often a deep commitment that I have that I, I feel compelled to yeah. live out of, you know, um, now I'm thinking, what do we have? We have thought through what Waco's Enneagram number is. We might need a summit on that. That's interesting. Okay. Even if I had, I wouldn't say. <laughs> Just saying. You know, you can't I, label us. Dallas is big. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Yeah. Was, um, it, was it on the podcast or just uh, not recorded that when you were talking with Russ Hudson, that he found there are more and more people out there right now misidentifying themselves as fours yep. because, mm-hmm. because of what soci- our society is today and where we're at with everyone is everyone's got a gift, everyone's unique, and everyone's kind of claiming that, wanting to claim that as their identity. Do you remember that conversation? I do. And he and I have talked about that since, actually. And I, um, what we've talked about since is that there's a good chance that coming out of uh, quarantine time and all that is unexpected, that um, we need leadership. He had heard me say that I kind of think this is a time for six and nines to speak up. Mm-hmm. And he said, and fours. Oh, that's interesting. And then uh, I, I said, let me ask if I know why. And he said, okay. And I said, I think a lot of people right now are trying to f- fake from the best part of themselves yeah. being better than they are, or it's all okay, or we're good, or we got this. And that's running out now. Yeah. I think we're running out of that. <laughs> we're tired. And we are tired. We are tired. And I think fours are the people on the Enneagram who will give us permission to feel like we feel, Aww. regardless of what's happening around us, because that's the risk that you've been taking since you were a little girl, right? Right. Yeah. Well, except when I was trying to cover it up. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. That's really good. I, I like that. And I'm going to think through that because I do think, um, so I have this Enneagram or Enneagram Instagram. It's hard to talk about Enneagram and Instagram together. That's hard. Um, Joel doesn't let me like say things and do things on Instagram. No. We started with me liking everything he posted and he said, you're liking yourself. You've got to stop that. Like that has to stop. Yeah, but I liked that picture. Yeah, I, liked that I, mean, I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> and then so I posted good. one time and, and I heard from him. He said, did you just say this? I said, yeah. He said, what's well, coming down? And it, like, let me know if you want to say something. Right. You're on the Enneagram side. Yeah, so that's yeah, helpful. for sure. That's helpful. Oh, my gosh. Um, so. Can I defend myself a little bit? <laughs> no. <laughs> that was me defending myself. Well, the most recent story is that I called and asked if you tried to uh, send a message on Instagram to DM somebody. And you were like, yeah, I did. And I was like, well, you sent it to a completely random person, to yourself, and to a, f- a fake Joseph Stabile account. <laughs> so, so it's not just, you know, it's, I'm not holding the keys for no reason. It's to protect you from yourself. You know, it's hard to work with your adult children. <laughs> I'm just saying. So all true. Like, I'm, I can't deny any of that. And, and I, yeah, I did all that. Okay, do you even remember it what happened. you were going to say before I 
tried to exonerate <laughs> myself publicly. <laughs> Do, is there anything else need to be said on this subject? <laughs> Not at the moment. Oh, you know. um, oh, okay. I remember it was Instagram related. Oh, well, I so because Clint was on Fixer Upper, and then I was on some episodes, and then we done some work and. Being connected in Waco, I just found myself with this Instagram account that was just growing. I mean, it was crazy. And then he and I would, um, Fixer Up would come on. We would, like, live story it or, you know, put things on anyway. So I ended up with um, this, all the, you know, these followers on Instagram. I'm like, what am I going to do with this? And um, I felt like, well, being a four, I can get into all the existential questions, like, yeah. you know, like that. And so I really enjoyed it, but I immediately was like, I do not want to participate in the, oh, look how cute this is, how cute my life is. And, you know, we're on TV now and everything's cute. And so I found a lot of purpose in that um, and kind of trying to show more of what our life really was like and, you know, being a, a mother of young kids and all of that. And so I was just reflecting on when you were saying that for maybe especially, but also sixes and nines want to help us feel our feelings and be okay with where we actually are. That's true. Yeah, I think I think we need fours to lead the way for us to feel our feelings. And in relationship to sixes and nines, sixes are the number on the Enneagram that's most concerned about the common good. Mm. So I'm kind of feeling like they need to speak up a little bit, yeah. and they're not inclined to. Right. And nines are the number on the Enneagram that see both sides of everything, mm -hmm. at least two sides. And they need to speak up right now. Yeah. And they're not inclined to. Yeah. And fours are not inclined to mess with you when you are, like, in your fake feelings. So it's <laughs> like, I, I just keep calling y'all out. Come on, come on, come on. <laughs> keep going. Yes, that's true. Well, and we'll speak out and then... We're just like, oh, but what does speaking out mean? Well, I don't know. Am I helping anyone? You know, <laughs> that's yeah. where we're at. There's all that. Yes. yes, all that. So I just put my leg out, and I remembered that I was coming to teach at a family, real families, real families, about real families, and. I was invited because they knew that I would tell the real stories about our family. And I kind of was going to do that, but I wanted to look real good, you oh, know. Right, so yeah. I, I had done all that. And I stopped to get a shot in my knee on the way. And the needle broke off in my knee. So they laid me on some x-ray table and dug around for a while to try to find it. Couldn't find it. Y'all buck up. It was my knee. <laughs> Couldn't find it, and uh, then they said, well, we're going to have to take her to surgery. So they took me over to a different place and cut it out, and I kept saying, I got to go. Like, I got a gig tonight. I have to go. So, Do you know who I am? Yeah. Well, no, I didn't say that. I know. <laughs> but I kept saying, I got to go. So they wrapped it all up and gave Joe a prescription to fill and said she has to take this medicine. Uh-oh. Yeah, that's what he said. I don't know why you wouldn't trust me on drugs. I don't. So I took the medicine, but I got here, and my knee started bleeding everywhere. So I ended up with this enormous towels and ice and a footstool and drugs. And they tell me it went well. I, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, I don't think so. 
Sounds like it was really real. It was real. <laughs> real families. I told all kinds of stories. And only two times did Joe go. Joe sometimes goes. Cut it off. Cut it off. <laughs> but nobody cuts you off, right? Yeah. No. Yeah. No, right. that's true. Yeah, Clint's like, <laughs> no, I don't. Tell me no. No, no and it's because you have learned to, because you're a four, You've learned to say what needs to be said without the things that are fluff. Mm. And I think because you get to the heart of things because you're fours, um, people get to dial in and hear what you have to say and not have to hear things that are ancillary that don't matter anyway. Mm. Do you see that as... A I gift do. in you. Oh, thank you. I'm I'm trying to. Um, I think the problem is people like fluff, and so you, if you want to speak out about real things, it takes a lot of courage, <laughs> and and I am in the doing repressed, you know, triad, and so it takes a lot of, it takes a lot for me to do it, and I think that is one of the problems with with social media there's such great stuff and then hard stuff and sometimes I think I probably make it look easier than it really is you know um and that's a problem for force because I want to be authentic um and I can it's a platform which is really great but it's also really hard too and it's it's like a part of me is so committed to authenticity and so I'll and because I'm working through my doing repression I think through, I, I will just jump out and do something sometimes. I just make myself do it. And I was thinking about Brene Brown on her podcast um, asks, like, you're really, one of her rapid fire questions at the end is like, you're really afraid. What do you do? And I always think about, I just do it before I really think about it. Because I can think and feel. I'm so good at feeling and thinking and feeling and thinking. But then getting to the doing is hard. So sometimes I just make myself do it. And then think and feel about it later. I'm not sure that's the best method, <laughs> but it's working for me. And I, I was talking with a friend that's a three, and he was talking about how hard it is to feel. And I, you know, he was like, "It's so hard. You don't understand." I'm like, "No, that's how I feel about doing." You know, and if you're looked into the enneagram, you know that you're repressed in one of those areas. And you, I'm like, feeling. What's hard about feeling? You know, but. That's where he's at, and that's where I'm at with doing. You know, um, I, I'm kind of working on talking about balance. Balance in thinking, feeling, and doing, not mm. trying to. You know, we always teach an Enneagram wisdom that you can't push down what's dominant. You have to bring up what's repressed. Mm. And so I've been working on these lists of what you can do if mm. you're uh, repressed in one of those three. And. One of the things that you can do is just do. Like, mm. just do it. Yeah. Because you don't just think and feel and do. You feel, and then you think about what you feel, and then you have feelings about what you think about what you feel. <laughs> yes. And then, right? Like, yes. that's on a never in, yeah, yes. unless you just do. Right. And I, maybe you've not ever heard me talk about this, but. The reality is that your repressed center is the purest part of you. So when 
threes and sevens and eights have a feeling, that's it's usually very pure mm-hmm. because it's the purest part of them. Okay. And when ones, twos, and sixes have a thought, it's usually productive. Like it usually has some value because it's the purest part of them. And so doing is for you too. So you don't need all that preparation for doing. You need to trust that and do. Mm. And then be really good to yourself afterwards Mm. and not talk yourself into some feelings that aren't real about what you did because it's unfamiliar. Oh, okay. I'm going to have to think on this. Think and feel a little bit Think and feel about that some more. (laughs) That's really good. Thank you. I don't want to forget the two things that you put last, generally on the form that we have people fill out. Um, the the thing they put last is uh, kind of a, a heart thing for them, right? Yeah. So what you put last was that Clint has a show uh, that's coming and that y'all have a shop here. And so talk about both of those a little bit. And then we'll go back to heavier things. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Well, I think everyone here knows that we have a shop um, here in Waco. And um, I, we just love being a part of the Waco community and um, just love getting to be a part of everything that's going on here. So I did want to mention that because I often forget to do that part and say, oh yeah, we have a shop and, um, please come support us and our amazing team um so i wanted to put that in but i think all of you guys know that (laughs) people who hear this are coming driving through they don't know right so you gotta tell them what it is where it is thank you practicality not always our strongest yeah that's right (laughs) thank you too um thank you for helping me with that um okay it's called harp design co and it is on 15th street and it's like three miles from the silos it's really close very close um two miles clint says two and it is actually the location that um clint and joanna would film for fix Harper. so that's kind of fun too it's the sign and everything and um it's just a really special place we have a lot of handmade goods that we make um here in waco and then we have some artisans that we are able to support um their work that's there and I still do the majority of the buying for the shop, which is really fun. And um, I work with one of my really good friends, Kristen, um, to do a lot of the displays. And it's just, a, I think, a really magical space, especially around Christmas. So, and then also, Clint has a new show coming out, which is really exciting on the Magnolia Network. And um, I just wanted to say that and let people know, because I know they would like to know that if they yeah. don't already. In the spring, is that right? Should be March. Yeah. yeah, if in, I think the three said if anything ever happens again, it'll be then, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. The the seven said that, right? <laughs> and a three would have said, and it's happening. <laughs> so it is happening. Uh, everything's going to happen again. So Joe says, <laughs> like I'm kind of whiny, you know. I'm like into it. Like oh, I'm so tired of all this, and I miss people, and I want to do this and do that. And Joe's a pastor. And then I'll hear him on the phone, and uh, it sounds like an unusual conversation. And I say, what was that about? And he says, well, it's a young woman uh, who is uh, quarantined with an abusive husband, and she wanted 
to know if I could help her find an attorney to do a will in case something happens to her. And then I thought, okay, <laughs> now I'm done whining, right? At right. least for a while. Right. That's and I, I lasted like three weeks. And then I was all at it again. And he got off the phone. He was a little teary. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, well, I just talked to a gentleman who's sitting outside Presbyterian Hospital with his back against the wall because that's as close as he can get to his mother who's dying. And I quit whining again. And I'm telling this story to say to you, how, can you tell us how to stay present to things that are not upbeat and things that are hard to bear without whining and without reframing mm. and without uh, numbing? Like, that's a four thing. How do you stay present to pain? that you can't fix or that you don't feel a need to fix? Mm. Um, well, I struggle. Of course, we're all struggling. This is crazy, you know, crazy times. But um, I know and have experienced in my life, I know that literally just sitting with pain transforms the pain. That's been my experience. Okay, and say that again. <laughs> so I know. You're teaching people who know nothing. <laughs> about what you're talking about. So say it again and then teach us how to do that. You're talking to people who one of us had their hand on the sad trombone drop wondering if there was a time to <laughs> use I? it in the past five minutes. I was like, I don't, I don't think this is the time. You know, the time. Uh, you and Whitney can start a support group because you're both married to sevens. <laughs> yes, yes, I'm sure we have a lot to say. In fact, we already started talking about it, I think, <laughs> inside. I know that just sitting with pain helps transform the pain. And I had to learn that at a pretty young age. Um, so it's just one of those things that happened. <laughs> and so because I didn't have any choices to change it, and so I realized that that is a gift. And it's very painful. But I, I also realized that it's a real gift to other people when you can just hear their pain even though it it's so difficult because I think all of us even fours want to do something to help people but just be holding a space for someone to talk about their pain that actually creates the journey that you're going to go on like and if you can't hold the space for the pain then you don't even know where the journey starts or where the path begins and I think that is so alternative to our thinking and our to our culture it's really difficult for us to get that me too I mean for sure yeah I think it's like sitting with someone in, in their pain and not judging them and not thinking not trying to help and not trying to do and not trying to fix actually gives you the key to unlock the door I'm terrible at that <laughs> like I am terrible do you think that the United States has always been a three country do I think that? Yeah. I've always. Got this is going somewhere. Always since when? I don't know. The like, first all right, so if we're a three country landing? right now. The, the reason that I ask is because uh, we talked about, you know, you're talking the country needs yep. sixes and nines. And, you know, what, what you described there, everyone who's going through this pandemic is experiencing some sort of pain one way or the other. Right. Whether they can name it or not name it, this is painful for every human being. 
And so it's obvious in that need that we have for fours. And so then my question just was, my thought, you know, when we look back at, I'm no historian, <laughs> but World War One, World War Two, where it was, I think that three mentality of doing and putting on this image of coming together, that's why I think we needed that. We, like I was around, they needed that mm. at that time. Mm. And now if if we need fours at this time, I'm curious if in 50 years people will be like, America is a, a four country. I don't know. I don't think, I don't know about all of history looking back, but I don't think America will ever be a four country primarily because I think there are fewer fours than any other number, and I don't think there's going to be a big enough influence to show us the way where we could become a four country. I don't know. Uh, I would love to hear some about that four seven marriage, and usually listeners really like that. (laughs) Yes, sure, yeah. Um, this might be a one-sided conversation, but <laughs> um, I think a four-seven combo is super fun. He's Glenn is shaking his head. Mm. Do not talk. Oh, I offered you my mic. Oh, okay, okay. Um, There's a microphone one foot from him. So. <laughs> Look, he's like, no way, absolutely not. He's not um, participating at the moment. <laughs> I think you reading truly i'm not trying to sell your books but also guys buy the books um the green book and the path between us is it helped me a lot because seeing the two of us together and being able to name things and go oh that's what that is is super helpful i mean we love nothing more than to dream about things and talk about things and you know we love watching i know everyone loves watching shows but we love to watch a show and then talk about it and talk about this angle and this angle and everything it's so much fun especially now we've been married almost 20 years so i think um we just find all of that so fascinating and we see things so differently that it's just wait what you thought that oh oh my gosh, this is what I thought. And, you know, uh, that's so much fun um, together. I would say it took us a very long time to understand each other. We are so different and we're both very passionate too. And working together, I mean, now we're so glad we did it, but now I'm like, was that the best idea? (laughs) You know, it was hard. I mean, I'm talking about hard. We just came to work from different places we prioritized different things the way we talked about I mean I don't know (laughs) it would be easier for me to say what we were alike more than what we weren't and then tie in you know young children and all the things and it was very very hard but I feel and we've said this that we're I mean we still have tough times for sure we can can just we're, we're exhausted by things you know when you're exhausted that's really hard for anybody But I do feel, and we both feel, and we've said this, that we're reaping a lot of the benefits of 20 years. You know, 20 years is is something. And um, we've learned a lot. And again, not trying to rep the books, but buy the books because, (laughs) and do the work because it just gives you language. I, I honestly, truly, the Enneagram and Clint, you know, is a joke forever. He wouldn't take the test. And so then I just told him, you know, and would say, hey, read this, you know. 
Um, but we have a framework now he has adopted it. He's, um, and we have a framework to talk about things and to value each other, you know, and talk about the good and the bad and hear what each other, where each other's coming from. And it's just given us a framework to be able to mature, I think. Yeah. You know, it's, isn't it fascinating that you can say something using an Enneagram number that you could never say using somebody's name? Absolutely. And it just works. Like, people don't get all whipped up or anything. It's yes. like, oh, yeah, I, I do that. Oh, that's true. Yeah. It, it's kind of mystical, I think, in the sense that you can you can just say, well, is that your nineness? You know? Yes. Like, totally. Or, oh, the reframe, because Clint's a seven. And so that even the word reframe is so helpful because... And it helped, I was like, at the time that we discovered the Enneagram, I think I was so sick of his reframing, you know, Mm -hmm. and so frustrated with it, but I had no words to talk about it. And so even understanding the reframe, being able to talk about it, and then also that helped me see the value in it too, and go, oh, I really hate it when you do it over here. But Mm -hmm. actually, when you do this over here, it is such a gift. And of course, when I was able to do that, then it made when I wanted to talk to him about the situations that didn't work for me reframing, then he was able to hear it better. Yeah, and and I think um, somehow in long-term relationships, we learn to kind of rely on the wisdom the other one has mm-hmm. without feeling like we have to learn everything ourselves. Yeah. You know, today I uh, apologized to Joe. We've been together a lot. <laughs> yes. Uh, and I'm crazy about him, and we've been together a lot. And I said to him, I'm so sorry that I got us into that mess. Because, you know, twos, if y'all don't know, we're thinking repressed. Twos, raise your hand. Because if there's no twos here, I'm not going to say it. (laughs) All right. So we're thinking repressed, which is a problem. That just means we don't think productively. But added to the fact that twos are thinking repressed, we process verbally. Mm. And we can't get to thinking something through without talking about it so then everybody knows you're thinking repressed right (laughs) so I apologized to Joe who's a nine and said I'm so sorry that I talked us to that place because it's just embarrassing now and he said I'm so sorry that I merged with everything you said (laughs) because we made a terrible choice it's like uh, and then that's it right instead of well it was your idea Right. Right. You're the one who thought of it. I just didn't want to have a fight about it or, you know, whatever the language is. Yes. And so I I think uh, one of the things that I'm trying really hard to do, are y'all finding a lot of people just to be irritating? (laughs) Like, I'm just like, wow. And what I'm kind of trying to say now is I think that's the reason maybe that I do what I do because... I think, I, I don't think I've met people who are bad all the way through, mm. right? Like Joe's good all the way through, mm. and I'm not. <laughs> and nobody ever argues with that. But um, I, I, don't, I, I don't think people want to be mean I agree. or um, horrible. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people don't have any tools to work with. Yeah. And... The Enneagram is the great equalizer because there's no, you don't have to have any kind of special anything to learn the Enneagram and relate to it. 
So, you know, sometimes when I'm going into a really big church, they'll say to Laura, who handles all that stuff for me, well, who should come? Uh, if, if you're going to teach our staff, we have a staff of 125, who should come? And the answer is everybody should come. Like, everybody. And not many people who come into organizations to offer something can freely say, everybody should come. This is for everybody. So That's yeah. so good. I, I really agree with that. And I think that's part of the mysticism I think you used the word and just the real the authenticity maybe of the experience and randomly um I went I think it's well I went to a meeting um because I'm I don't know if I told you this but I'm working on a master's to be a therapist and it, it is really cool it's yeah really our daughter Jenny her. just did that oh really yep. um and so I went to a meeting and um Anyway, I was noticing in this space where it's kind of like a group therapy, um, something, I was supposed to write this paper reflection on So are you at a recovery meeting? Recovery meeting. Thank you. Thank Uh you. Okay. And um, I, so I was really reflecting on it and writing about what I thought um, the experience was like. And I noticed that, so I was really trying to find the language for it, that I felt because you could come to this recovery meeting, um, on day one of your sobriety or, Mm -hmm. you know, year 63. And so it wasn't a linear learning. It was like a circular or spiral learning so that the person who was on day one talking about what that was like for them, it was valued within the community, what they had to say, because there was an understanding that learning is circular and that on, you know, year 63, you still had something to learn. And I'm really interested in that kind of learning. I think, I think that, is a gift to our communities and something we should think about. Um, I know we have some teachers here and actually personally knowing them, that's the kind of learning that they teach. I'm just thinking about that with our kids and thinking about that with our community, thinking about that with our faith communities too. Cause I know so many faith communities are asking, you know, where do we go? What do we do? And I, mm-hmm. I think that the Enneagram as well. That's why it can attract so many different people wherever they're at. Yeah, I think so, too, Uh, in the Enneagram cohort. We take people who have known the Enneagram for six months and people who have known it for 20 years because the people who have known it for six months ask foundational questions that people who have known it for a long time forget the value of. Right. Right? And I think in sobriety, uh, in my experience in recovery rooms, I think in sobriety, uh, you forget sometimes what it was like to be there. Yes. And, you know, it's, uh, we were all there. Yes. No matter what we're talking about. Right. We were all there, Mm -hmm. and we just forgot. Right. And I think uh, part of what's happening right now with so many people losing their businesses and losing their income, losing their jobs, losing their homes, losing so much that it feels like failure to be there again. Mm. And I, I found the foundation's always a good place to be. I'm not saying it's not hard. Right. And I'm certainly not saying that I don't have unending compassion. Yes. But, uh, you know, we will all rise, I believe, with new understanding and new grace. And we got a lot of work to do to be leaders in that process, mm. which means you're going to have to speak up, girl. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm trying. You're doing a good job with me. Oh, All right. So tell me, tell them, okay. tell them okay. two things. Can I say something about what you just said? You really can quick? say anything you want to. I just wanted to say that I, that reminds me of um, biblical teaching about the first shall be last and the last shall be first. I think we're reminding our, all of ourselves of our foundation, you know? Um, and I think that also this kind of learning and like what you're talking about, going back to the foundation helps us not with other, helps us with othering other people, which is a big problem. I think a reason it's easy to talk about those losers <laughs> or those other people, you know, but when we circularly learn and we are willing to go back to the foundation and see that as a part of our learning and a part of growth, it's harder to other Joe and I were uh, asked to give a retreat for a um, small uh, community on a college campus that kind of, you know, like we have Wesley houses for Methodist kids and other houses for other denominations. You know, we can't get together. we got to <laughs> right. hang, you know, whatever that's about. Don't you know Jesus is just worn out from us? Worn Absolutely out. worn out. And the staff uh, said to us, we kind of have a problem in, on our campus uh, because we're a conservative school. And not everybody's willing to move ahead with understanding the LGBTQIA community. And um, uh, we, we would really like for the two of you to tell us how to handle that. And Joe and I were looking at each other like, you go first. (laughs) And all of a sudden, we collectively said, you know, rather than addressing any specific other person, why don't you just do a year about the other and have people come in and name who the other is for them and why and what they're afraid of and don't other groups of people either like just where are you and who are all of these others and I think that's going to be a growing community coming out of everything that's happening and you know I've received an awful lot of grace in my life and if you can't hand it on I don't know right like I don't know so um I'm just fascinated by this I'm very thankful for it and I like it that you put two hearts after it. And <laughs> I like, like to soften things. <laughs> well, there's good emojis here. Like I, that, I'm all about the emojis. I am too. Yeah, I know. communicate a lot. It just takes they a minute. Yeah, <laughs> and do. if you type with one finger, then if it's emojis, you feel better. Like because you're not using thumbs and stuff. Just so you know what it's like to get old. All right. So you said this. I think anytime Christians are together. It's important to at least touch on racism and also racism in the church. And my response is, me too, two hearts. (laughs) Thank you. Red hearts? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, maybe every color. Oh, I like that. uh I like that. uh I like that. I like that. You start. Okay. Well, I wrote that because that's an understanding that I've really come to um, this summer and I think, like Joel's question earlier about um, the history of the United States and 
where do I even start with this? But I don't, we do not know our history. And I want to say that I am speaking as a Christian, a white, white Christian woman, mm-hmm. but I, yeah, obviously everyone's welcome here and I'm not assuming anything about anyone, but um, we do live in a Christian nation, a, a predominantly Christian nation. So that's why I think it's really important to talk about these things. Our culture um, has been very shaped by Christianity. And I have noticed, and I would have observed this maybe if someone had asked me before, but um, but we weren't thinking about it, right? I have noticed we do not know our history as Christians in this country. And that's really problematic for us. And because we do not realize that as the majority of Christians in this country were wrong about slavery, and the majority of Christians in this country were wrong about segregation, and maybe we would get that right on a multiple choice, you know, questionnaire, but we're not really thinking about it. And so when we don't know that, then we don't know, oh, when, when uh, people are marching in the streets that are other <laughs> than us, especially, we do not know our history. So we do not know that we immediately need to realize when this has happened before, what was our group doing, you know, and that's very important information that we need to know. And so... I think that the only way that we can move forward in that is to be aware of that. We've got to talk about it. And the more that we talk about it, the more we realize the connections. You know, this is a group, um, even here tonight, um, of a lot of white people, you know. And I know that it, that feels scary. Like, as soon as anyone says, you know, racism or race, it's scary. And that's a real thing. Um, but if we don't talk about it, we don't know our history then we're just going to repeat it over and over again. And so I, yeah, that's why I said, I really think that Christians and especially white Christians need to be talking. And the, the good thing is there's a lot of representations of even denominations and lots of different types of Christians here and people that aren't Christians. I mean, white people in general, people in America need to be talking about race, but uh, white people also, but I, I do just think that this, the church, we need to, what are we about if we're not about this and about um, reconciliation. I mean, isn't that our gospel? So I just think we've got to talk about it all. We've got to talk about it often. <laughs> okay, this is super awkward. Are you ready for Why? it? Um, no, that what I'm about to say. Oh, you, you haven't know, been awkward yet? Because <laughs> so I think true. you're doing great. That's so true. Thank you. Um, as parents, we're, uh, you know, Clint and I are in our 40s. We, we're realizing, you know, we're talking to our kids about sex, right? Parents didn't really talk to us. We're going to talk about sex. We're going to talk about it often and early. Well, I think the same thing about racism. <laughs> we've got to talk about it often. We've got to keep talking about it. We've got to figure it out. We're going to be wrong a lot. We've got to get comfortable with apologizing. We've got to get comfortable with saying the wrong thing we've got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable and yeah we just got to talk about it we got to start with we've got to start with listening which I got a lot of pushback (laughs) about just asking people to listen I think that shows us where we're at me too me too and then we've got to get comfortable with talking about it figuring it out okay so brave that's so brave and thank you uh, it's you feel how heavy it is. Yeah. So I'm gonna lighten things up a middle, minute, and then we're gonna get heavy again. Okay. So enjoy these few minutes because we're gonna come right back. <laughs> and I want to tell people, me too, me too. It's hard for me too. Sure, you know, sure, sure. I, me too. So we did do the sex talk early and frequently. Yes. And uh, when it was Joel's turn to have the time with just Joe and me, <laughs> he to hear have the sex talk. He said. 
man, I, I heard everything you said to both girls, and I'll pay you not to have it with me. <laughs> Can I? He's not here to tell me no, but uh, my brother-in-law Billy's story of that is the greatest one. He got in the car with his mom to drive to, I think, Lubbock from Dallas. Oh, oh that's a long and 360 drive. miles. <laughs> and he got in the front seat, and she tossed him this book that he still has as an adult that I got to see with 1970s, 80s styles imagery. Oh, man. And then he got to have this seven-hour drive with his mom, and here's the book, and let's talk. <laughs> Could not get out. <laughs> Could not car. get out. <laughs> There this you book's go. hilarious. i got to find that and I'll <laughs> take a picture. All right, here we go. Okay. I actually said to somebody who was a Baylor student and then on Kristen's staff, <laughs> uh, who I love a lot, uh, who was one of my apprentices, and I said to him one day, maybe 10 years ago, I don't know how long, I said, you know, I just don't see color. And I was so earnest about that. And he said, well, you know, that's not okay. <laughs> and I said, really? <laughs> so that, that got my attention. And then uh, recently when all of the racial discord and difference raised its head again, and Joe came home and said that, uh, the members of the staff that were that are black asked the pastors on the staff to please share with people that they're tired of talking about being black. They don't want to be asked anymore, well, how does it feel to be black? Is it hard for you to be black? You know, like, stop asking us that. You haven't ever asked before, so stop asking that. And I think maybe what I've picked up, and I don't, like, I don't get this right, and I have gotten it so wrong, and this might be true for other people, too. I've gotten it so wrong that I'm afraid to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm afraid I'll say the wrong thing. Me too. And it'll be heard by people who don't know my heart and soul, and then, and then what, I right? Think. I think a lot of us feel that yeah. way. And the thing that I've learned from listening lately is that... Our brothers and sisters, uh, and that's an honest feeling for me, not just language, who are black, don't want to educate us. Yeah. They want us to educate ourselves. Yes, they do. It's like you go learn and then talk. Yeah. But don't ask me to teach you. Yeah. And it's just another lazy thing that, that people of privilege tend to do. And so... Sometimes if y'all don't know my work, I take a little side trip and tell a story to set up what I'm about to say, and I'm fixing to do that, so I want you to understand what I'm doing. I've struggled with weight since I was 16, and my beautiful daughter-in-law, Whitney, uh, beautiful inside and out, uh, is a therapist, and uh, I don't ever get that, ever. I don't like to be weighed, and Whitney is a therapist who has... A lot of specialties, but one of them is uh, eating disorders. I'm trying to learn to use that language, too, because, you know, there's right language and wrong language for that. And she gave me a card this week that says, uh, or a few weeks ago that I used, that says, uh, please don't weigh me. And on the back it says, you don't need to, and I don't want you to, like it's better than that. But that's what it says for me. 
And that's the setup to say, uh, you can get those cards from Whitney if you want them, but that's the <laughs> setup to say that I wish I had a card that I could hand out when I feel like I'm walking into a conversation about race, but I'm afraid I'm going to mess it up, that says, look, my heart's in the right place, and I'm probably going to mess this up. And I don't, I'm not asking you to teach me. I'll learn. But, I, ugh. Because otherwise, I don't think we're going to talk. Yes, I hear you. And I think so many of us feel this way. And it's so scary. And it's true. It's scary often because we don't, want to offend other people, you know, and I think that comes from a good place. Um, but I think that even in that, something that I think about that's helpful is, and I have learned this from black activists, mainly women and mainly on social media, which I think is a great thing. A great tool of social media yeah. is you can follow people and don't comment. <laughs> don't say anything for a long time and just watch and learn it's super helpful like that. Um, a lot of people have extra classes and all kinds of things. But something I've learned from them is that even, and this is hard, it's so hard, but what we have to struggle to do is not to center ourselves. Even sometimes I think our desire to not hurt other people or um, not be seen as like all the other white people is still centering ourselves. That's what I've learned. And it's just hard. And I think that it's very humbling, very humbling work. And I think my friend Taylor um, Post said this, that it's like waking up to realize that things that as people of privilege, we didn't even see. And privilege comes in lots of different ways, of course. Um, but whiteness is one of them. Um things that we don't even see other people have to know literally to exist in the world, you know, like mm -hmm. for their lives, you know? And so when we realize that it just, it's like a deeper and deeper reality and a reality check. And I think, I think, I don't think we have to talk about faith when we talk about this, you know, I think everyone can be at this table and I, I hold the same view as you that people have goodness everybody has goodness within them so I don't you know need and I don't I don't see you needing people to be Christians but because a lot of people of you know your work and you know people here in Waco are Christians I think it's helpful to frame it with this conversation right now within that and I think what more like Jesus is a position of humility you know and I think another conversation that I've I've had and talked about a lot is you know, uh, Christianity is really a religion of the oppressed um, because Jesus' stature as an oppressed person in the Jewish people when, you know, um, he was alive. And we are not oppressed, you know. So these are a lot right now um, as Americans. And so these are a lot of just realizations and thinking that we can have that can really deepen our faith. I mean, it's really a call to, to deeper faith if you're a person of faith, I think. But it's serious, serious walk of humility it is and it's um it, it's hard to make the journey without a backpack full of shame right right like it's just kind of generational yeah ancestral yeah shame. it's just there it's just all there all right well here's what i think we'll do um let's do a few q a okay and then we'll talk some more if that's what joel agrees to because you know he's in charge he's the boss yeah right uh i like that idea one quick question you talk about ones, twos, and sixes, and everyone, but especially for ones, twos, and sixes, the importance of re-examining your belief system. And we've talked about different ways and tools to do that. 
how can that be done on an institutional level of reexamining the that belief system? Well, what Joe and I uh, are doing right now is uh, we have asked the church leadership where Joe's on staff to be willing to come to the Micah Center to be taught. And then LTM pays the speaker to come in and teach the leaders of an institution what they need to know that they don't know. Like, they don't know. And, uh, you know, in the United Methodist Church, we're about to split, probably, as a denomination. I suppose over many things, but we're hanging it on the bones of um, different biblical understanding of uh, homosexuality. And um, it's just so unnecessary, actually. I wanted to say, I'm really sad about that. Yeah, we are too. And I'm I'm sad about that, and I'm real sad about how... um, how little grace I've had for people who don't think what I think. Yeah. I'm not as sad about that, but I need to be. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We have a gay son who's married. And, um, you know, when, when people say things about him that don't know him, I get a little whipped up a, a little bit. If any of you follow my work, you've heard me talk about a big steeple pastor that I don't agree with about much of anything. This is what I've learned about struggling with how much I disagree with his theology. Here's what I do agree with. He he stands by it. He believes it, and he stands by it, just like I stand by mine. And, you know, there's got to be some mutual respect for that, even if he's wrong. Um do you really want me to answer that? <laughs> I think the, the, I hear you. I do hear you. And I'm not saying I'm right, but I'm saying where I am right now. I think, I'll, oh, you know what? I'll bring in our friend, Brian McLaren. Let's I mean, do he's, that. He's, he's my friend because I've read some of his books. You know? Well, he's really good he's friend. my friend too. Um, he talks about making space at the table for everybody except people that don't make space for other people. Yep. And that, I don't know. But it's like, but what does that mean, Brian? <laughs> like, what do we, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's something I really think about because um, obviously the gospel is about unity also. And I think in checking ourselves and starting here. And I think about that a lot. But when unity requires us to compromise with people that are leaving other people out, mm-hmm. I'm not sure that it's gospel unity. I mean, I don't, it's not gospel unity. Brian actually, uh, accidentally started a church like he and grace had some couples come to dinner once a week to kind of talk about scripture and stuff and then they wanted to come twice a week and then that morphed into a church which grew and grew and grew and then brian left and i said to him one time why did you leave like why'd you leave you you are articulate and you could have led them maybe to a new place why'd you leave and he said i had to leave when i no longer believed the answers that i was giving to their questions and i think what joel's bringing up is that for ones twos and sixes in particular but for every number we bring answers with us from childhood that we don't ever re-examine it's just like yeah that's what we believe 
I don't see color as something that we learned when we were kids. Yeah, like no. that's what your parents taught you. Like yeah. that's what you were supposed to. That's yeah. what we were supposed to say. It's and true. no one ever, in, until ten years ago. Yeah, nobody right. said that's not that okay. Examined. Right. right, right. So we thought we were doing the Which, right thing because it hadn't been reexamined. So, oh, Joel, look on the wall. We have two of the three sheets here that we could teach from. So here's here's the I, practice that we're fast. offering. So sorry, we uh, we stopped into the design store today oh, okay. and gets what they have on the wall a big thing of butcher paper that you can you can get there you go oh, scroll of butcher yes, paper. Yes. all right so uh this this is a thing you need to get right on over there tomorrow what i don't know what day of the week is is go tomorrow and get butcher paper and here's what you're going to do with it um get three pieces about that long and hang them on the wall how many of your ones all right, so I know you've already decided you're not going to do that because I want you to kind of hang it on the wall like in your living room where you'll see it or your family room so you see it every day. And your thought is, yeah, no, no, I'm not going to do that. Well, I want you to, but you can square off the bottom, you know, just make it just right. Then you can fix it with masking tape. Like it can all be really great. You can use different colors of duct tape and it can match the decor. Do whatever you have to do to be okay, but take a deep breath once. I'd like for you to leave it for six weeks. This is how you lose a crowd. <laughs> and then what we suggest is that you start off for the first two weeks writing on the first piece that you're going to look at over and over and probably add to uh, the belief system that you brought with you from childhood, like what you grew up believing. And if you grew up in church, what the church you grew up in believed. And... Um, what your family believed and espoused to be the right thing and the good thing. And you just add and add and add and add and add. And then on the middle page, you leave that up, and on this middle page for two weeks, you write down the things that uh, your current participation in different groups suggests that is your belief system. So when I did this, I had to write down that my current church situation would not ordain people who are gay. But I don't believe that. But that's the belief system that I am part of as a United Methodist. So there were a lot of other things, too. And one of the reasons there were so many things for me is I had a safe, good childhood growing up in the Methodist church. And I... Um, I didn't really know that I had a reason to re-examine all of that. So that's all here, two weeks. And then you spend these two, four weeks looking at that, and on the third piece of paper, you write what you believe. And then you figure out how to accommodate your belief system with your lifestyle rather than accommodating a, a different way like there's an inverse way to say that but I feel like those words aren't gonna fit together just right right now so um, I, I think to not re-examine beliefs or what we were taught by very good human beings yes I'm so glad you said that yeah it's true. good 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 yes. people who were trying to be Christ-like in yes. the way they lived their lives. Yes. And uh, we just missed a lot. 
Yeah. We missed a lot as we Christians. Did. You know, in, in uh, lots of ministry circles, they say that the most segregated place in America is churches on Sunday morning. Right. And I'm going to speak to two sides of that. Okay. Um, for 12 years, Joe was pastor of Dallas's oldest deeded and dedicated Christian church. Joe's friend, Elsie, uh, was pastor of Dallas's oldest black church. And they were remodeling. And our church had a lot of space. So Joe said to Elsie, bring all your folks and just come worship over here. And you can have Metters Hall if you want to worship by yourself, or we can worship together, or we can mix it up. We can do whatever you want to do. And so they stayed on our campus for 18 months. There's a lot to learn besides uh, you're welcome to come worship with us because what you don't say is the way we worship what we learned was it's not just about black folks and white folks and brown folks and other people of color worshiping in the same place it's about honoring worship traditions from all of those different cultures i think we have so much to work on so much to work on. So my question for all of us is this, and then we'll do a little Q&A if it's time to do that. My question is, what does your number have uniquely to offer to the rest of us in learning to be in these conversations and stay in them? Because if we... We're able to have all nine ways of seeing as part of what's in our pocket, then we would certainly have a better chance at transformation in our own way of seeing and in our relationships and maybe for the future. All right, Q&A? Yeah, if you got a question, we got a microphone right there that you can just mosey up to. question can no. be about anything. It can be about anything okay. all right so this question's actually for my husband i've been whispering i was like are you gonna ask the question are you gonna ask the question what question i'm not gonna tell you my number i'm not and i'm not gonna tell you his um but here's the question i've listened to your podcast a lot and you've mentioned before now granted i've made about halfway through the enneagram journey podcast so i'm like around 60 so you might have covered it later on but um in there you said you've never met a nine that's an extrovert and so could you talk about that a little bit? Like, and maybe you have met nines that are extroverts. So I was just curious. And this is probably a very silly question, but I feel like I know a unicorn nine. And so I didn't know kind of sure. how that meshes. So um, I hate to give this answer. I'm going to answer you. Uh, and it's going to cause more people to ask questions about something that I'm not going to talk about. So then that's, you know, kind of problematic. But we're going to do this. I have met social nines who would fall right in the middle on Myers-Briggs who would be labeled or referred to and understood, who would be understood as being extroverted nines. And nines with an eight, sexual nines with an eight wing 
are often seen as extroverted nines because when it comes to a justice issue, they get real big in the room, and then they wish they hadn't as soon as that's over. So does that help? I can also say that uh, I remember I think that came up in the conversation with Jenny, with your daughter. Yeah. And then... Your sister, my daughter? Yes. And I forget what your exact words were, but believe me, we got a lot of people that emailed in and said that they were uh, extroverted nines. So you know what that's going to mean? That's going to mean that I, I, the, the people in the back are going to say, people behind the curtain are going to say, don't ever say that again, Mom, because that's not correct. Cool. Are you the extroverted I'm nine? I'm the extroverted nine. <laughs> well, I was going to call you out because if you're an extroverted nine, nobody else needs to ask your questions for you. Yes, I know. I, I sat there the whole time. I was like, I know I'm doing repressed. I know I need to do this. <laughs> I hear that. And but I was like, what question what what's the right question? Just talk about me. But um I will <laughs> say <laughs> So anything else you want to say about it? I am it's less justice. Like I have really truly come alive with people, but then like if I'm home alone, like all the it's really I'm part of a nine group on Facebook and it's really funny to read and half the time I'm like, Yes, that's me and then sometimes when they're talking about the energy levels and I'm like, uh sometimes that's me but I'm I'm not a seven. I'm not a two. It's what I originally thought when I first was jumping into this. I'm very much a nine. But I would love to know what you think about this. So you talk about just do it. Like to you. Like say to myself. But I really struggle with if time has passed. Like if it's just do it right now or a soon thing. But if, the more the time passes, the more I get stuck in the thoughts of like, the pain that will come from of like not just should I do it but then oh it's been so long since I've done what I should do and I would love to hear just any insight you have on ways to help stop that cycle do you know does that make sense it sure does (laughs) I live with one you know one nine so uh let's start here later is not a point in time Later isn't a point in time. And so when you say later to yourself or when you say it to somebody else, it's not coming. And what happens to nines is you are boundaried internally and externally, and that's a full-time job. So you try to keep in anything that's going to cause trouble, and you try to keep out anything that would steal your peace, right? And while you're doing that, things come into your life and your response, because you've not had time to evaluate whether or not your response is going to cause fragmentation, distancing in some way. So it's like, oh, yeah, I need to do that. And then there's another and another and another and another and another. And then you're so far behind. The only thing you know to do is this. And start over. But then, because your orientation to time is the past, I got a lot of competition here tonight. I'm just saying. And I'm betting on me. Because. 
so then what happens to you is once there's this pile of stuff to do, you don't know how to prioritize that. So the the best story is the original that I've heard or come up with is my original one when I teach, which is if Joe's admin put everything he has to do on an index card on a big, long table, and he does a lot, it would take a big one. When he walks up to the table, nothing looks more important than anything else. It's just overwhelming because it all has to be done. And that's what happens to you with all these things that you're going to do later, right? And so you start over, but then you're just covered up in what it feels like to have to start over and what's going to happen to cause a problem with the things that you didn't get done. And while you're doing that, you're putting things off again. So the mantra has to be, later is not a point in time. And... I've said it so often to Joe that he's learned to say it before I get there. And so let me tell you what. you got to have a reason. There's no motivation. You made it this far and people think you're great, right? So why bother with that stuff? So here's Joe's reason, and it completely changed his responses to life. I, uh, in non-pandemic times, travel a lot, and I travel and teach and work because we've both discerned that that's ours to do but I don't like it much I'd rather be you know with him and um he started doing the to-do list while I was traveling to honor that I was somewhere doing something that was hard for me So he was going to do the things that I just mentioned, like in passing. We ought to do this or this or this. I would say that since we've been quarantined, he's waning a bit. But I know it'll go back when I get back on the road. And and so you got to have a reason. And and guilt is a terrible reason. And shame is worse. And not liking yourself is a waste of time. And so you got to figure out why. You'd rather do things now, and you'll do great. And if you're going to stick with that you're an extroverted nine, then she can't talk for you anymore. (laughs) All right, what you got? Hi, um, my name is Taylor, and I'm a two. And (laughs) thank you for the good confession. Um, And um, I think lately the place where I am in the journey is I have an easier time connecting thoughtfulness and my think, like bringing up thinking uh, in connection with my emotions and a harder time doing that sometimes with doing. And so I just wondered if either of you could talk about bringing up the thing that is repressed and how to do that in like a fully embodied way. Well, that was, Taylor, were you here when I talked about you? I didn't even know you were here. That's the Taylor I was talking about. I mean... I, I just, just do, <laughs> just yep. do it. You right just got to just do it. Yeah. And what you talked about, is but you so can't helpful. just think, you know, here's the problem, Taylor, y- you know, um, people can tell if you don't have any feelings like eights and threes and sevens, right? Like if you're feeling repressed, everybody knows it. 
if you're start not sprinkling in some heart emojis to throw people off the tent. <laughs> That's good. If you don't get your stuff done, everybody knows it. But unless you just make a fool of yourself, people can't tell that you're not thinking. Right? And so it's like, wh- what am I supposed to do then to bring that up? So here, here it comes. The driving question of my life is, what is mine to do? And the only way I can get there is by asking myself other questions on my way to doing. So I have to be careful as I approach somebody to help them to ask why I'm doing it. And then the second thing I have to do is I have to figure out if I expect to get anything in return. And then the third thing I have to do is figure out whether or not other people want my help. And that's, that's like a whole lot of work right there. And it's hard and problematic and doable. The next thing is that for a long time, a long time, I said to myself, I'm not going to read any memoirs. I know, I just lost you, didn't I? Yeah, I'm not going to read any memoirs. I'm not going to read any biographies. And I'm not going to read any novels. Because evidently I don't think. Like, I feel like I've done all right. But did you hear what I said? I feel like I've done all right. So I would encourage you to do some reading that isn't... Yeah, and so here's a story for you to remember, and then you might want to do this as soon as you spend some time not reading good stuff. Um, I found out that Henry Nouwen self-identified as a two. I just one day very boldly said, well, publicly, of course, because that's where I process. (laughs) Uh, I've decided to read everything that Henry Nouwen wrote in the order that he wrote it. So I can kind of watch his spiritual journey. He wrote 42 books. 42. And I read them all. I did it. But I went back. That was 30 years ago. 28, maybe. I went back and decided I'd read them again. The first whole bunch of books. I have all these notes in them and things underlined. And they're all for other people. Like, I have other people's names in the column. This would be helpful to Joe. This would be helpful for Jenny. And I didn't get a thing from that. And it's so hard. It's just so hard. And I tell ones, and I think it's good for twos also, that if you really want to bring up thinking, read people you don't agree with. And that'll get you going. So, you know, it's something to try. I wouldn't do it during a pandemic. (laughs) But maybe when it's over. Why don't you hold her to that? When the pandemic's over, ask her what she's reading. Okay. Okay. Got it. Uh, I'm Travis, and I'm also an extroverted nine. Go nines. Um, So this week, Thanksgiving is coming up, and 
uh, many Americans are stressed and anxious um, about conversation with family, either gathered together or around um, family, for conversation around difficult or contentious topics. Uh, and so I'm wondering, are there any especially useful ways that the Enneagram can help us prepare uh, for conversation with family around this time or even during um, conversation with family at this time, um, especially around politics or racism, as we talked about earlier? Um, so how can the Enneagram help us uh, set the table, so to speak, for those kinds of conversations? It seems like a good day to show up, pay attention, tell the truth, and not get attached to the results. That's it. Good, good job, Joel. So those are four mantras that we work with a lot. <laughs> Do you know which button that is, Whitney? Well, get your cute little butt up there and find out, because I want one of those, and I don't get it. <laughs> I should know to never engage him in that way. Never. So, um, four mantras. Show up. That means be present. Pay attention. Tell the truth. If you can't tell the truth, then don't say anything. But here's the big one. Don't get attached to the results. And see, we're all attached to the results. Like, when I show up and tell you the truth and pay attention, then you're for sure going to think what I think. And that's not correct. So if our goal is to exchange truths with kindness and respect and understand one another better, but not to have everybody leave a Democrat or everybody leave a Republican or everybody leave a Methodist, then it's a different conversation. Hi. I am a seven. I identify as a seven. And I guess I was just wondering if there are introverted sevens. <laughs> um, I feel like I'm not the Peter Pan. They describe sevens as a show up. They're the life of the party. They're always talking. And like, I feel like I identify kind of with the four sometimes. I can go deep. I love having an intentional deep conversation. And I know my subtype is the sexual one on one type. And that might make a difference in how sevens show up. I don't know. But, um, yeah. Joel is an introverted seven. And I never quote Luke correctly. Would you do that little bit, please? Yeah, I can try to. Uh, Luke talks about... Luke Norsworthy, Norsworthy. pastor of a church in Austin. You interviewed him. Yeah. Yeah. That his big thing that he wants people to know about sevens is that just because they lead with the humor and lead with the joke, that there's more behind that. What's behind that isn't just joke after joke after joke after joke, but there's depth behind it. And he feels like people don't think that about sevens. What about your seven? Yeah, I, he's right behind you, and I was, like, looking at him to see, because I, I, like I feel like that's something you would say and feel deeply. Also, uh, let me just say, for me, as an introverted seven, I don't need other people for me to have my party. Like, I like <laughs> partying solo. And I can be at a place where there's a ton of people up and be there by myself, and I love that. I often say, I think the Enneagram's great, but by itself, meh, you know. With other spiritual practices and with a purpose or a call, then it's something else. Uh, okay. 
So how is that happening for you? That's a big question. That is a big question. Um, well, I think it's it's just a tool to be able to endlessly, and of course I love to think and feel, as we know. It helps me think and feel a lot. Um, and I think that, yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm just going to repeat what I've said about the doing repression helps me a ton to think about what where my hangups are and when I'm thinking and feeling too much and when I need to do something for sure. And there was a moment when you were beginning to look at all of the racial questions that we need to be grappling with when you decided to do more than think and feel about it. So how do I see that? So how does your foreignness play into that and... How does Clint Sevenis play into uh, that? Okay, that's a good and question. how does uh, your relationship with your worshiping community and people whose number you know play into that? Like all of that is that the Enneagram is bigger than an answer to the question that the gentleman asked who was walking by. Like right. it's bigger than that, right? Right. right. Okay. Well, I think that... Um, my need for authenticity and my, and I, I know that because of my Enneagram work um, really helped me to just say, oh, this is a gift that I have to give. So it helped me be brave to, to do. Um, and I think that um, with Clint's sevenness, <laughs> um, I think that a lot of our work that we had done together and um, we got married really young because we've been married 20 years. So clearly, right. We were just babies, children. Um, So I think that we've really learned how to be individuals. And I think the Enneagram has helped us with that because when you get married really young, you know, you're, I talk about this with the Richardsons a lot, you know, you're growing up together. And so that was their experience too. Um, And I think that our, Understanding, I think the Enneagram has helped us understand ourselves as individuals and make choices as individuals too. And also it helped me to be like, this is my choice that I'm going to make and see him as a separate person and he can make his own choices. And I think I did a good job of, of holding that space, honestly, which is hard. I don't often talk about what I did a good job with. So Yeah, very proud of that. I like listening to that. <laughs> Thank you. I think we got time for one more question. I, I know somebody was standing there a second ago. Um, I'm Sarah. I'm fairly new to all the Enneagram stuff. I went on a Laity Lodge retreat, and everyone at the table around me was, I'm a four, I'm married to a six, I'm a two, and I had no idea. So I'm still learning. I I think that I fit in the nine world. Um, I'm a therapist, a speech pathologist, speech therapist, and I work in healthcare. I'm going to cry just talking about this. Um I guess advice for how to not carry all of this home to my precious babies. I didn't think I was going to do this. I'm sorry. Um, Because I feel so deeply and connect and have that empathy with all of my patients and kind of how to, in my 20-minute drive home, kind of shift to be mom. Okay. Uh, Whoa, whoa. Stay there. Would you get the chair behind you that's empty? And put it right here. <laughs> so I don't usually do this, but, you know, we don't, we don't get to be together tomorrow or next week. So I think you're a two. 
And lots of times when people are just hearing about or just learning about the Enneagram, twos and sixes and nines get confused about which one they are, especially twos and nines. Yeah, it's easy. It's easy to do that. Yeah, well, they're not the two anymore. You're a two. (laughs) So uh, what we do, you and me, is we feel other people's feelings. Kelly feels about other people's feelings. So she holds her own feelings and from that space responds to how you're feeling. So she feels a lot for you right now, but she feels completely separate from all this too. And I'm like in the boat with you. Sorry to bring you along, but thank you. No, no, no. I'm glad to go along. I uh, think if you look back and if you watch yourself now and observe yourself, so you're not uh, you're not feeling your feelings when you work with a little kid who's having trouble, and the mom or the dad or the parent is right here. You're feeling their feelings. Yeah. Right. So what you do then is to help. So you can resolve what they feel. The problem is that you don't, you're not there when they resolve it. So you take it home. And you take everybody else's feelings home. And you get home and you pick up the feelings of everybody who's at home. So the hardest questions anybody will ever ask you are, what are you feeling and what do you need? And we don't know what we need because our unconscious childhood message that we brought with us from childhood is it's not okay to have your own needs. So if somebody asks me what I need, I don't have any idea. I don't know. I don't know. And what are you feeling? Uh, sad. Why? Well, because you're feeling this, not you. So... I started traveling and hearing stories from people all the time from all over. And I brought them all home because I had all those feelings to carry. So I was doing from around the country what you're doing from work. And uh, Joe said one day, we got to figure out a way for you to leave those feelings there. So uh, we uh, came up, he mostly, came up with a ritual for me to do. So what you just need to come up with, and you can get um, Pastor Taylor to help you, or you know who's good at ritual is right here. Uh, Do you all know each other? Okay, well, you're sitting in a chair that's reserved for her family, so now you do. And it might be uh, prayer. And it might be a song that you listen to every day on the way home. And it might be uh, that you write down the names of the people as you go through the day. And you kind of bless them. And then you leave them there. You'll figure out what to do. And then you go home and live with your family and live your life. And then you go back to work. And if you don't do it, you'll burn out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you, settings and, yeah. Anyway, and if you burn out, if you burn out, then this beautiful human being that you are 
trying so hard to be present to and help other people is going to be in a different field that perhaps isn't the one that's for you. So you got to do it. Okay. All right, so here's how this ends. <laughs> okay. Are, are you just dying for it to be over? <laughs> a little bit. A okay, little yeah, bit. yeah. Well, if I thought you weren't, I'd keep going because, you know, I can just go on and on, but we'll stop. But here's how it ends. I want you to promise me that you're going to figure out how to do that so that all those children who need you haven't met you yet are going to get to. Okay. Promise? Yes, I promise. I feel a I little promise. bit like Dr. Phil and Oprah right now. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry I dumped this with the last question. Um, I'm so glad you did. Well, thank you. I'm so glad you did. And she's going to give you her phone number. Okay. It's a guarantee. (laughs) Yeah, I already have an idea. See? It's already done. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You come to one of our workshops, you can get your shit handled. Oh, I am like, I am so glad that Sarah just cried for all of us. Yeah. You're just doing how we all feel, Sarah. I hope that you feel that and know that. We're putting a bow on this. All right. Well, I want to put a bow on Kelly. Gosh, it's good to get to know you. And thank you for your vulnerability and for talking about fours and for um, bringing up things to talk about that we're sometimes afraid to talk about or afraid we're going to mess up or not get right. Clint, you're a lucky duck. Thank you. Yay. See, you get the real applause. You don't need a button. Yeah, I don't don't need need a button. button. We don't need a button, Kelly. We don't need a button. Uh, And also, thank you all so much. That would have been a real bummer for the three of us to be talking to the cars. So thank you all for coming. Yay.